Hello and welcome to our brand new season of Harris and Conversation, our Harris Federation teaching and learning podcast brought to you remotely from London. Our series aims to bring important and relevant teaching and learning conversations to you, whether you're a frontline teacher, a school leader, an educational enthusiast, or you just licked on this by mistake. My name is Ollie Blagden, and today I'm joined by none other than the esteemed educational researcher and author Alex Quigley. Alex is a former English teacher and school leader of over 15 years standing who now works for the Education Endowment Foundation, supporting teachers to access research evidence. Alongside this, he's a research ed trustee and a member of the Chartered College of Teaching Impact Journal board. He runs the educational blog, The Confident Teacher, has a column for both TES and Teach Secondary magazine, and is the author of education-based books, which include The Confident Teacher and Closing the Vocabulary Gap. Today, we're discussing Alex's latest title, Closing the Reading Gap, which, in its own words, provides practical solutions to help all teachers create a rich reading culture that will enable every student to thrive in school and far beyond the school gates. Described by critics as timely, wonderfully enlightening, important and a core text for all teachers, Closing the Reading Gap has taken the world of education by storm. So make yourself comfortable as this pre-recorded interview with Alex begins. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hi, Ollie. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's jump right in. So you begin the book by mentioning that the word reading evokes memories of your father reading to you at your bedside. And that really struck me. What does reading mean to you? And why did you feel the need to write this book in the first place? I think for me, reading is, is both an intensely personal Thing, but it's also you know professional I, I look at reading with a kind of a scientific eye as well and I think I think we all have this sense of reading as a, as a personal thing you know the reality if you're a teacher is that you were successful at school you were a fluent reader and that expertise has you know has brought you to this point at the front of the classroom and, and if you're an English teacher then there's you know the added value that you know reading as open doors you know emotionally and professionally and and for me it's got that real personal power describing my father and and my own children now I have a real privilege just reading to them every night is you know the best 10-15 minutes of my day without a doubt but I also see that reading for so many children is a real challenge that actually lots of children don't read for pleasure that they read throughout the school day, but but many can struggle. And I think my experience as an English teacher, in, in my years in the classroom, I did develop a solid sense of how children learn to read and go on to read to learn. But I don't think it was ever a big focus in my training. It was just assumed that I could teach reading and I love books, I could analyze a text. You just kind of, you're asked to get on with it, really. And, and the more I dug into the research evidence, the more I understood that actually there's more to this. And rather than a child has you know, a label like dyslexia or they're struggling with a text, there's more to that that a, a teacher needs to know. And, and that's both an English teacher, but also every teacher is fundamentally a teacher of reading because your ability to read opens up the curriculum. Or if you struggle to read, that door is closed. So for me, reading, it means quite a diverse range of things. Fundamentally, it's 
powerful and emotional and it opens up doors and it unlocks you know really personal memories but on a really pragmatic level it's what helps students succeed in school teachers understanding the science of reading really unpacking the barriers and, and the nuances of reading i think that's crucially important it's amazing isn't it really how something that can start off so personal can uh, move into something that is just a fundamental of, of how we live day to day, isn't it? And I think what struck me about that opening segment about reading with your father, is something that I could relate to as well, and I'm sure many people could, and it, it is such a personal thing. And I would say that some of my formative memories are of just that. And, and interesting, that you can see the connections there with communication and with growth, can't you? It all kind of comes together. You did mention the research. Let's have a quick look at some research. So a few headline statistics from the book. Only 73% of pupils leaving primary school reached the expected level for reading in 2019. One in 11 children do not have a book at home. And one in eight disadvantaged children do not have a book at home. Alex, what's the challenge we face and how serious is it? I characterise the reading gap and, and it's closely twinned with the vocabulary gap. They both interact very closely, as you imagine. They're kind of our language access to the curriculum and, and to everything we read. And, and for me, that gap and that challenge starts really early. And, it, you know, back to my father reading to me, it reaches back before children ever get to school. And that some children, many, many children have a really rich early language environment and they're reading with parents and caregivers and they have all those all that lovely book talk and exchanges and they have this exposure to vocabulary and to language and to these imagined worlds and this background knowledge of the world and yet many children don't have that equivalent experience and what we know is that this vocabulary gap and, and this experience of reading is very different and that marks out children's preparedness for school. Right in reception, the children who've had those language experiences outside the school gates are better prepared to sit on the, on the mat and listen to a story. They're better prepared to tackle those early words. And then as you move through school, and that statistic about a key stage two, you have around a quarter of children who aren't making that expected standard for reading. And then what we find is that that gap remains hard to break. And you see the same equivalent number of children struggling at GCSE. 25% of 15-year-olds have a reading age of 12. And so what we see is that from the early years and then throughout primary and secondary, we have this tricky gap and we have this large group of students who are struggling to read they don't quite have that necessary word wealth to access the curriculum and so it's something that we all need to be aware of and although it sounds in part a bit insurmountable because so much happens beyond the school gates actually we do know from the evidence that making adjustments to our daily teaching and teaching of vocabulary and explicit teaching of reading and getting that early platform of reading right all of these things matter and, and even for that 15 year old who, who's struggling there are strategies and there are ways to shape our curriculum that can make a significant difference yes some of the statistics are bleak and this is something that starts early but it is something that if we can focus on it and if we can harness our skills in the classroom we can make a difference too 
It's interesting, isn't it? You, you use the word there, insurmountable. It can sometimes feel like this is an insurmountable challenge. And dare I go down this train of thought a second, but the statistic we looked at for the primary school pupils was 2019. Now, 2020 has obviously been an unusual year for education, to say the least. How might the epidemic have exposed or even exacerbated the reading gap? Yeah, so my work at the EF, we, we've tried to do some early studies, which looks at the impact, particularly on disadvantaged children. And as you can imagine, it doesn't look very positive, And it's certainly not helped in closing this gap between wealthy peers and, and disadvantaged peoples. We don't quite know exactly the impact. It's too early to say. But if we go back to that statistic, one in eight disadvantaged children don't own a book then you can extrapolate from that. And if you consider, well, they don't quite have that literate support in the home. They might not have the technology. There's a big big focus in these last six months of a lack of technology. Less so this lack of books. But actually, I think there's something hidden there that's really important in terms of access to print is a bit of a canary in the coal mine for your ability to access language. And over the past six months, what we've likely seen is that those word-rich children who've got all those supports outside the school gates maybe had a really good experience. And I, I was speaking to a colleague earlier who's a, who's a mother over in Warwickshire, and she was saying about the experiences with their children and reading, and, and that actually they really made a big progression because they were reading so much. And that's fantastic, but we also know that there's a bleaker reality for lots of other children where parents... For various reasons, their own literacy, busy working, all kinds of factors where lots of children haven't had that reading experience. And crucially, they haven't had the teacher, the supporting, steering, nudging their comprehension, asking those crucial questions, teaching that word that they stumbled over. And those differences will matter. So we don't know exactly the impact, but it's not likely to have been positive. And it's more likely that those children who were struggling to access the curriculum and read before March have probably worsened. And so I've been quite open. Yes, there's lots of things to focus on at the moment and and safety and secured bubbles and, and all of those things certainly come first. But actually, when we focus on teaching and learning, reading and this access point to the curriculum and your language will determine your school success. And that's as important now as it's ever been. And and in two years' time, when we have this kind of hoped-for future where things return back to normal, it will still be that significant challenge because it's not a six-month problem. It's a lifetime issue, and it's a generational issue. And so, yes, these past six months have probably had an impact, but it's probably just shone a light on what was an existing problem. And so for me, let's, like we should be doing six months ago, and we'll do six months ahead, we should focus on reading and tackling this language gap. The message seems to be we need to get onto it right now. We need to act. And one of the great things about this book, I have to say, is that alongside the scientific research and, and even the history of reading, which is really compelling read, you also look at solutions and strategies that teachers and leaders can take to address this gap. Now, towards the start of your book, you outline six key steps or criteria, I suppose, that we can work towards in order to teach reading effectively. Would you mind briefly outlining what these six steps are and maybe explain how you arrived at them? Yeah, so they're not quite chronological, although step one, I think, is a starting point. 
And it's that teachers need to be trained and, and need to have expertise in how pupils learn to read and go on to read to learn. So as a secondary school English teacher, I never had any formal training about how children learn to read and, and how children may have barriers to reading and that still manifests themselves throughout secondary school. It was only my own teaching of child language acquisition and then my own research interest that brought me into this space and found that actually there's a lot of really strong resources and evidence and books out there that distill this in a way that's accessible for teachers. So step one is supporting teachers to understand the academic challenge of reading. We sometimes take it for granted, particularly as expert adults, and unpacking that and seeing the challenge that our novice pupils are facing, I think it's really helpful. So, so that's the foundations for all the other steps, frankly. Step two is develop and teach a coherent and cumulative reading-rich curriculum. So over the past couple of years, reading has, has always been important, but the, the notion of curriculum seems to have risen to the top of the pile in terms of importance for schools. And as I describe this, well, reading is curriculum. Reading is the gateway to so much of the academic knowledge of our curriculum. For English teachers, of course, it's just fundamental. And your ability to write is wedded to your ability to read. And then in history, your ability to read historical sources is, of course, integral to your success there. So looking at our curriculum, thinking about how we can connect up that rich knowledge, how we can make sure texts are seamlessly linked, how you know the likes of literary concepts that appear in our reading are connected up so curriculum building is that step two and, and it's about putting complex rich reading at the heart of that step three is about teaching with a focus on reading access practice and enhancing reading ability and i think we often focus on reading for pleasure and of course for for adults like ourselves who are fluent readers and particularly english teachers Reading is a pleasure, and, and it's certainly a pleasure for me when I do it with my children, and they're emerging fluent readers themselves, and, and they find that pleasure. The problem is too many pupils, you know, that 25% who are reading below chronological age at age 15, and that quarter of children who are struggling in their key stage two SATs, those children will have issues around reading access. They don't have those books or the supports around the books. They don't quite get the practice. And so this is about really supporting and considering hard those practices of how we read, when we read, particularly for those children who are not highly skilled readers. So the likes of drop everything and read and the likes of what books we choose, all of these important factors of, of the school week and, and our teaching practice, they all come underneath that step. Step four is about teaching, modelling and scaffolding people's reading so they become strategic and knowledgeable readers. So in chapter four, I talk about reading comprehension, which is, of course, you know, the goal of, of reading to understand what you read and to make all those rich inferences and, and draw out the emotion and the understanding. And you have to have vocabulary knowledge and you have to have literary knowledge and generic knowledge and all of these important factors that you can orchestrate in your curriculum. But you also have to be a strategic reader. And what we know, particularly of, of our weaker readers or, or even just our kind of average reader, is they often don't deploy those active strategies when they don't know a word or phrase. They don't quite activate their background knowledge. They don't notice you know, patterns of imagery, etc. And so we need to help and be more explicit and deliberate about being a strategic reader. And for me, 
being a skilled reader is knowledge plus strategy. And it's about knowing the nuance of that. I think sometimes in the, in the past year or two, the notion of a knowledge-rich curriculum, which I think has got a lot of value and it's an important debate, it can be too simplistic that if you just orchestrate the knowledge in the right order, you know, you create a, a timeline of literary text, for example, that it will all be accessed and all remembered and connected. But of course we know, particularly with weaker readers, they won't be able to make all those connections without a real strategic approach. And that comes down to just the nuances of daily classroom teaching. Step five is about nurturing people's motivation to read with purpose and pleasure. And I've already noted the point about reading for pleasure, but I also think we also have to recognize reading for purpose matters. So for some children, they don't have that pleasurable experience as a teenager of they don't read poetry necessarily in their own time. They, they won't read fiction. And yet some really love fiction. And I think sometimes we can assume that pleasure and, and fiction reading should be a natural state. And actually, I think we can recognize that for many children, they'll become adults and they might fall in and out of love with such fiction reading, or they might be more naturally inclined to reading nonfiction. So I think we should be a bit open about reading for purpose and that every time you read it has value, whether that's reading a maths problem in a GCSE maths paper, that is the act of reading as much as reading personal poem or, or song lyrics in the English classroom. And then finally, step six is about fostering a reading culture within and beyond the school gates. We can't gift children bookshelves and we can't overnight foster this habitual reading for pleasure, but we can step by step build a reading culture. We can practice reading on a daily basis and help students become really skilled readers. And then the motivation and confidence flows from that skill and from that success. So I think a reading culture really does matter. How we use school libraries matters. The book choices we support and, and make decisions over matters. But we, we have to have a culture that's much more than just one-offs, much more than World Book Day and dressing up. It has to be part of the, the very culture of our school. And because reading benefits every pupil and every subject domain, then everyone gains from focusing on that reading culture. Just a really comprehensive breakdown of your six strategies. And I would love to grab the phrase, reading is curriculum, put it on a massive bumper sticker and display it for the world to see. Yeah. I'd, I'd support that. You also brought up in, in what you were just saying there around all the, the six strategies, you were talking about reading fluency at one point, and you mentioned it in the book, and you referenced Rosinski's multidimensional fluency scale. Reading fluency, when mastered, is something I've always thought is quite magical, really. It's that pupil who you see in class, they're not just reading, they're almost singing the words, they have that varied pitch, the tone, the pace, and it's always felt like me to... Uh, a bit of a performance how do you think we move all pupils to that point yeah i think there's a misconception that, and it's a little bit like you know you've got a child who's got a great singing voice or they're great at art and, and and we have this notion of being gifted and being talented and it feels a natural act and because for those pupils who do read with that you know beautiful sing-song voice they put the stress in the right spot you know they teach it they read in a really expert way that's because there's been a great deal of practice. They have had a lot of role modeling from parents and, and teachers that they've absorbed and characterized. And yet we know, and I, I describe it in the book and in, in the vocabulary book as well, sitting down with students I've taught, and I, and I can remember vividly, you know, sitting down and asking a, 
a student to read a paragraph from a Christmas carol and it was a painful stop-start process and what that student had managed to do is to misbehave quite regularly to mask ever having to read because he couldn't read with any fluency but I think what I like about reading fluency is actually there are pragmatic strategies so in the book you know I describe some of them repeated reading echo reading reading in pairs with an emphasis on fluency there are, there are four or five really manageable, doable activities. It, it works really well with poetry, particularly because of the natural rhythms of poetry, but, but not exclusively. And just by focusing on a small number of strategies and paying attention to fluency, you can actually make a quick difference to students who, who have that stop-start lack of fluency. And I know Radzinski's multidimensional fluency scale is a bit of a mouthful of a title, but I've, I've included it in the book and you can just Google it and find it. What I love about it, it's a side of A4. It's a scale of looking at four things, expression and volume, phrasing, smoothness and pace. It basically gives you a really simple breakdown of what we mean by fluency. And then because we understand it better, we can teach it. We can use that language with our pupils even and we can model it and also pair them up and have them focus on it. So I think for me, reading fluency can really bring out your understanding of a text. We know that it improves your comprehension. And actually, it's a, it's, in many ways, it's a bit of a quick fix. It's a really strong area of focus for English teachers and every teacher. Absolutely. I think really exciting, actually, isn't it? To think that those are things that can be taught. There is a science behind those variables there that enable you to read more fluently. That's something that all teachers need to be aware of. Just bringing it for a second back to back to you, really. Uh, you mentioned your son, Noah, aged six at the time. He had to read for homework a few sentences. And I'll just read them if you don't mind. Katje had an easy life. She lived with Nico the Miller in a Dutch village by the sea. While Nico ground grain in his windmill, Katje chased mice. Up and down the ladders she prowled, searching behind sacks of grain and long beams dusty with flour. So for listeners who haven't yet read the book, can you explain a bit, Alex, about how such an opening as that might be challenging for a young person to comprehend? And what's the solution? Yeah, so as an expert English teacher father, you know, you can imagine I, I pay close attention to when my child has a homework task that involves reading. And this one was when Noah was six. He was still emerging. He wasn't fluent. And this Catch of the Windmill text by uh, Gretchen Wolf. Really lovely story. But in that first paragraph, words like Dutch, village, ground grain, windmill, prowled, dusty beams. So many of the words, we, we read the first couple of paragraphs and I just prompted and just asked a couple of questions and he didn't know so many of those words. And actually, the assumed background knowledge required for most texts, both literary and informational texts, it has a real high demand on background knowledge and your vocabulary knowledge. And Noah didn't have enough knowledge of the words and all the knowledge of the world to know what Dutch village was. He can piece together the gist. So he probably knew enough about village, enough about what a windmill looked like, but actually he couldn't piece together all of those vocabulary terms. So inevitably his comprehension was only partial. 
And I think that happens every day in a, in a student's experience. That they read a poem, they read a historical source, they read a science textbook, and they've got a partial understanding. Some children have a much more complete picture and a richer vocabulary knowledge, and they, they're the ones who you know, are really successful in school, pretty much. And yet most children find these small barriers each time they read. For Noah, that really brought home for me that every homework task we set, you know, over the last six months, every remote learning task of reading, there are those small potential losses around vocabulary knowledge and background knowledge. And what we did with Noah, just a couple of simple strategies. I, I talked a little bit about a Dutch village and we talked a little bit about the world of the text. We don't live in a particularly rural spot. So we just unpacked that and, and gave him a, a visual of, of that scene. And then also I just asked comprehension questions as we went through. And also he had a strategy where we were, he was circling what he thought were important bits of information to go with the comprehension questions, et cetera. So with just some focus on knowledge and strategy, we were able to get through that tricky text. But on a daily basis, particularly in English, students are grappling with tricky texts particularly that quarter who've, who've got that lower reading age, for some texts, they'll particularly struggle. For others, they might have accessible background knowledge. But that identification on the micro level about what makes a text challenging is really powerful and important. And it's really crucial to understand that and, and build our curriculum with that in mind. So connecting up the world of our texts, characterizations, so you can just minimize and open up that world. You can't teach everything about a text and nor should you this isn't about kind of you know unweaving the rainbow sometimes you have to immerse yourself in the story and ask questions and and, and make predictions at the point of reading but sometimes you just need a basis a framework a foundation to access a text and, and that's what that example with noah gave me a sense of and i think it's useful for for every teacher too and do you think alex is i mean what we're talking about here really this is the idea of a, a schema would you say yeah, so it's exactly that. So, you know, from the psychology of, of knowledge and memory, the, there is that term schema, schemata. You're building, you're scaffolding this framework. You're building the foundations and then you're kind of connecting things up. And the more explicit you are about making those connections, the, more, the fuller your picture. It's a bit like a jigsaw piece, you know, and, and each word being a jigsaw and, and each metaphor and image being a piece of that jigsaw. And the more deliberate and strategic you are about, about building up that jigsaw, the more complete a picture you have. And one of the important things as well, and we see this on a weekly basis in the classroom, is that when you have that full comprehension, when you've got that good schema that's richly connected to your background knowledge, you remember better. So you've got that full jigsaw picture and, and you can recall it a week later, a month later, you know, the end of the school year. But then on the opposite hand, if you didn't quite comprehend and you didn't have all the pieces, particularly vocabulary, your working memory was overloaded. So you ask seemingly simple questions about that text you studied on Monday. And by Wednesday, it's seemingly gone. It's like you never even taught it before. And that's one of the issues why schema building and being explicit about your curriculum development and about each text being richly interconnected. And that's where it becomes really important for every teacher to consider this. Really fascinating how it overlaps there as well with new information and relatively bite-sized chunks, isn't it? The idea of progress bit by bit by slow exposure to these different schemas. Really interesting. 
Towards the end of the book then, and we, I mean, we've sort of touched on this quite a bit, which is excellent, but towards the end of the book, you dedicate a chapter to practical strategies, so useful. What is this and how should it be used by teachers? So for the last two books in particular, but, but each book I've written, I've written most of them as a teacher in the corners of weekends, you know, after marking and all of that business. So I recognise that we're, we're all pretty much time poor. And we need some bite-sized, practical approaches to get started with things. And I I think it's really crucial that we understand the theory and the evidence and and we get to grips with the history of reading and the science of reading. But ultimately, we need to have a go at some stuff and and, and reflect on our practice. So the practical strategies chapter is, you know, near enough 50 approaches it breaks it down into chunks. So there's a section on approaches to developing fluency. There's a section on questioning for, for book reading. There's a section on library use and, and building that culture. And then a section on just reflecting on your different reading choices in the classroom, whether you choose to read to the whole class or whether you choose to move around the room and, and those different options. So it's an, and it's an attempt to have that go-to pragmatic section of the book that you can try things out and and hopefully it sits upon all the strong evidence and and, and the narrative that the book offers but it's something that you can try the next day you can kind of really work harder I really enjoyed how the first strategy that you mentioned is love thy library that really stood out to me as being such a very important angle to take when you're looking at promoting reading in your school yeah, I think our librarians are often an, an untapped resource. I think too often our fluent lovers of reading are the children who frequent the library. And, and there are quite a lot of, of people who it doesn't feel a comfortable place. They don't feel happy in the library. It doesn't feel natural. And I think that's, again, us being explicit, us drawing upon that expertise. Reading for pleasure will happen. For some children, reading for purpose will happen for some children quite naturally, regardless of who teaches them. And yet for a lot of our students, we need to support them in that job. So we need to help them with choices, book choices, and give them that Goldilocks book that might trigger you know, them reading another book and just immersing themselves in that practice, which ultimately leads to school success. You know, we know that those children, you know, those teenagers who read for pleasure habitually, along with their homework and all the reading they do in school, they're the children who do best because you know, the correlation is really clear. If you're a skilled reader, if you're a habitual reader, you do great in school. So on on one level, it's quite simple, but it's a bit more complex too in terms of trying to get all of the students to exercise the opportunity of the library when we know for some that's a harder job. I think renewed encouragement there for all teachers to help their pupils find their Goldilocks book. Let's just end with the beginning. So you start your book with the line, if you can read this, thank a teacher. So Let's do that. In the spirit of celebrating those who shaped us in life, tell us, Alex, about one teacher who influenced you and how they did so. I was one of those students who really did enjoy school. I think that's probably true of a lot of teachers. I'm from quite um, you know, kind of a working class background and reading and school unlocked doors to you know, a profession that I've been you know, grateful for. And there are definitely teachers along the way um, interestingly, I think the two that came to mind 
just instantly. I had a teacher of history in Key Stage 3, Mrs Keogh. And what I remember of Mrs Keogh is she was really demanding in the best possible way. So her, her expectations are sky high. And a really vivid memory, and I, I used to use this with my students and, and my own children too, is that I spelt the word parliament incorrectly seven times um, for you know, a given kind of passage in the book. I don't remember the exact piece of writing, but she made me write that word out 700 times. And at the time, I thought that was you know, awful. And I can't say she was my favorite teacher at that point. But, but I look back and actually her expectation, her, her notion of you know, something just being lazy as opposed to something being a flaw, really having a high expectation. I also remember her saying lots of things about my capabilities and my skill. And I did end up doing very well in history. It actually exceeded his, history compared to English, my other kind of favorite subject. So that always stands out as a, as a little micro thing that I didn't enjoy at the time and I didn't quite appreciate just how powerful her words and her actions were for me as a teacher. But I really appreciate it now. And, and it was interesting. She moved schools and ended up teaching my sister. And I just finished university and I, and I did very well and got a very good degree. I remember being delighted that my sister had the opportunity to tell her about my degree and about my degree class. And apparently she punched the air and, and I'm incredibly proud of that. You know, it's partly down to her and, and many other teachers. And, and I could probably go on and on about with, with a healthy list. What an amazing story. And I can imagine your sister never misspelled Parliament. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's really interesting. I've got a bit, when I was a child, I had a bit of a, a blocker on spelling. And both my children have it a little bit too. So th- there's obviously a genetic strain that my sister might have as well. We don't talk about it much. But I, I've certainly worked up my spelling since. Um, and I can spell Parliament with the appropriate I and A in the middle too. <laughs> it is one of those annoying words, isn't it? Where does that A come from? But there you go. Closing the Reading Gap by Alex Quigley, published by Routledge, is available now from all good book retailers and, of course, on Amazon. It's a compelling research-based look at reading and would be a valuable asset to teachers and leaders across all subjects and disciplines. Alex, thank you so much again for your time today. It was a real pleasure. Cheers, Ollie. Thank you for having me. This was Harris in Conversation. My name is Ollie Blagden. Thank you so much for listening. And for now, take care.